Marriage is under attack in our country. Uh, it's under attack all over the Western world. In the space of two generations, an institution once so central to the human experience has been utterly transformed. In Canada, in 2016, over one-fifth of all couples, 21.3%, were living uh, common law. More than three times the share in 1981, which was 6.3%. According to the 2017 GSS, 39%, almost 40% of married 25 to 64-year-olds lived common law with their current spouse before tying the knot. Up from 25% in 2006, an increase of 14% in 11 years. Single-parent families now represent 19.2% of the total. Canada is a country where one in three marriages end in divorce. In 2005, Canada became the fourth nation in the world to legalize a gender-neutral definition of marriage, and today 1% of all quote-unquote married couples in Canada are same-sex couples. Brothers and sisters, this is not the work of neutral sociological cultural influences at work. This is the handiwork of our adversary, the devil. Because an attack on marriage attacks the very core of the gospel itself. And as marriage is more and more debased and devalued, both in the world and in the church, so divorce becomes less and less the God-defying travesty it truly, truly is. Our nation's moral standards have been systematically lowered, and God forgive us, they've been lowered in the church as well. Let me give us a very large, very easy target to shoot at first. And this, is, this illustration is a bit dated now, but the point I'm making is still valid. Uh, on January 3rd, 2004, at 5.30 a.m., so note that time, pop star Britney Spears married her childhood friend Jason Allen Alexander at Little White Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. The marriage was annulled 55 hours later. Mr. Alexander said that he and Ms. Spears hatched the idea to get married on a whim. It was just crazy, man, he told Access Hollywood. We were just looking at each other and said, let's do something wild, crazy, let's get married. Or consider the pop song, Marry You, which just as appropriately could be entitled Divorce You by Bruno Mars, released in 2011, which was a top 10 hit in Canada. Here are the loathsome lyrics. I hope no one here bops along to this song. It's a beautiful night. We're looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. Is it the look in your eyes or is it this dancing juice? Who cares, baby? I think I want to marry you. Well, I know this little chapel on the boulevard we can go. No one will know. Oh, come on, girl. Who cares if we're trashed? Got a pocket full of cash we can blow. If we wake up and you want to break up, that's cool. No, I won't blame you. It was fun, girl. Don't say no. Just say yeah and we'll go. If you're ready, like I'm ready, because it's a beautiful night and we're looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. I think I gotta go take a shower now, but why why is this sort of behavior wrong? 
What is it that makes the behavior of Britney Spears and Jason Alexander not just irresponsible and immature, but sinful? It's due to the nature of marriage, as revealed to us by God in the Bible. It's because of what marriage ultimately represents in the mind of God. Marriage is a divine ordinance found in creation itself. It's a sacred union entered into between one man and one woman for as long as they are both alive. The two, in fact, become one flesh in the eyes of God. God himself has joined that man and woman together. And when we look at married couples, and it doesn't matter who they are or even their religious beliefs, we're seeing an unbreakable one flesh union. The kind of union that makes divorce the equivalent of an abortion. Or better yet, a picture of apostasy. Because human marriage is ultimately a picture of Jesus' marriage to his own bride, the church. Now, divorce is a difficult, controversial subject, and preaching about divorce has lots of pastoral challenges. One challenge is that there are so many legitimate approaches I could take with this sermon. I could make the sermon a warning. I could warn, marriage is sacred. Remember your vows. Jesus never encouraged divorce, so don't do it. And I could legitimately preach a sermon like that because the weight of the New Testament falls on the side of warning against divorce. But I could also use the sermon to talk about God's compassion for those who have been hurt in marriage or those left behind in marriage or those sinned against in marriage. There are and have been members of this church who have experienced such things. Or I could take the sermon in a different direction and encourage those who have sinned in divorce or sinned in remarriage to repent and to receive God's merciful forgiveness. I wish I I had time to go pastorally and theologically in all these ways, but what I'm going to do instead is survey some important biblical texts on the subject of divorce and remarriage. They're, They're in your bulletin. And uh, and Alex read them for us earlier. And 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16, will be the last passage we consider as we work our way through these texts. Which means this sermon is going to be a bit different from what I usually do. It's going to be something of a concise biblical analysis on one subject. Divorce and remarriage. I did this three and a half years ago. So it's high time we do it again. All subjects related to marriage need to be on the front burner at New City Baptist Church. Culturally speaking, this is where the devil is attacking. And part of what I hope to show in this analysis is that the New Testament teaches there are only two grounds for divorce to be valid in the eyes of God. Sexual immorality and the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of their spouse. I also hope to show from Scripture that the New Testament teaches if 
either of those biblical grounds is met, then remarriage is permissible. In those two cases only, remarriage after divorce is not adulterous. In the eyes of God, the one flesh union has been dissolved in God's eyes. But first, a a word of caution. New City, God has placed high, high walls around marriage. And those high walls are his divorce laws, his divorce commands. And God's divorce exceptions are so few, and they're so specific. And the concession of remarriage or of marrying someone who has been divorced is so limited, so exceptional that we must not be, we must be asking not, not, what are all the exceptions? What are all the loopholes so that I can know my rights? But rather, what is it about marriage that makes it so precious in God's sight that necessitates these high, high walls of divorce? What, what precious treasure is being guarded by those high walls of divorce? What is it that I'm not seeing when all I'm doing is looking for divorce exceptions and marital loopholes as a means to serve my own self-interest? Christian, it is quite possible in order to preserve the sanctity of a marriage where a divorce has occurred for unbiblical reasons that a Christian will be called upon by God to remain single the rest of their life or else be reconciled to their former spouse. And God does not see that as an exasperating attack upon our our, our personal happiness, our sexual fulfillment, or our holistic well-being. It's part and parcel of coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things and of living in obedience to the teachings of Holy Scripture. Marriage is precious, and God hates divorce. He hates it. And as God's people, that's how we want to be thinking about marriage and divorce as well. So let's turn to the Old Testament scripture concern, passage concerning divorce. Actually, this is the only Old Testament law about divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And all these texts are going to be, they're, again, they're helpfully put into your bulletin. And of course, this text occurs in a different period of salvation history from our own. Old Covenant Israel is a theocracy, right? Israel does not have her own courts legislating laws for people. The nation's laws come directly from God. So Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. If a man marries a woman who, is be- who has become uh, displeasing to him, another way of translating that a bit more pedantically is she finds no favor in his eyes. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her, 
and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, it goes without saying, the subject of divorce and remarriage is one of the most complex and sensitive topics a church can face, and many Christians disagree with one another at various points of the discussion. However, any position we adopt on the question of biblical divorce and biblical remarriage must concede, after reading this text, that divorce and remarriage was practiced and tolerated in the old covenant community of Israel. That's not to say divorce was met with divine approval or divine sanction in the old covenant. And Jesus will tell us later why God tolerated divorce because of the sinful hardness of people's hearts. This was not the way it was back in Genesis 1 and 2. Nevertheless, Divorce and remarriage was practiced and tolerated in Old Covenant Israel. The law of Moses allowed for it. Now, Deuteronomy 24 was actually a very controversial text in Jesus' day. And students of a rabbi named Hillel went so far to suggest as to suggest that the husband finding something indecent about his wife in verse 1 could be uh, her burning his supper. So, Burning the potato pancakes. That's actually grounds for divorce in some people's thinking in Jesus' day. That completely misses the point of this passage, of course, uh, because, but this became the proof text which men of this school would use to divorce their wives for any and every reason. Now, we don't know what something indecent refers to in verse 1. The text doesn't say. God doesn't tell us which is why there was so much debate about this text in Jesus' day. And if this were the only text in our Bibles about divorce and remarriage, we'd be living in the marital wild west because there's a lot of ambiguous stuff in this text. But thank God he's given us more revelation. Uh, When we look at how this phrase, something indecent, is used in other places in the Old Testament, it refers to something Shameful. The Hebrew, formerly translated, is nakedness of a thing. And this precise expression is used in only one other place in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23:14, where it entails the failure to bury human excrement. Let me just read you this text because it's the only other time that this phrase is used, all right? So Deuteronomy 23, 12. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver you from your enemies. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent. That's the word, phrase. And turn away from you. So, whatever something indecent might be referring to in verse 1 of our Deuteronomy text, we know it's not adultery. We can know that because the punishment for adultery is prescribed in Leviticus 20.10 in in Old Covenant Israel. And both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. The woman is not given a bill of divorce. She's executed. 
along with her adulterous partner. But if we look carefully, we see that the whole thrust of the Deuteronomy passage is not about the grounds for divorce. No, the thrust is that a woman who has been divorced for something shameful, something indecent, not further defined, who then marries someone else and then is divorced again, she must not, under any circumstances, return to her first spouse. That's the concern of this text. Her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land. The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The reason being, verse 4, she has been defiled and would bring defilement to the land of Israel that God was giving, giving to the children of Abraham as an inheritance, which firmly, firmly places this text and teaching in the context of the old covenant community of Israel. Uh, Because no matter what position a Christian takes on this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, I have yet, I have yet to hear someone say, you'll defile the land of Ontario if you remarry your first husband who divorced you. Now, we're going to come back to this passage later because this, again, this is the text the Pharisees appeal to when they try to test Jesus by asking him if a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. Uh, But before we go on, we need to note that the divorced woman is allowed, she's allowed by God to remarry, just not her first husband. But she could marry a second man after being divorced from the first, and presumably a third man after being divorced by the second. Divorce and remarriage was practiced and tolerated in the old covenant community. Frankly, it's just, it's just not a matter that's up for debate. That's just the way it is. There's more we can say about this, and I expect our Q&A to be very lively today, but we need to move on. Let's continue our biblical analysis on divorce and remarriage by turning now to the New Testament, the New Covenant, Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Listen to what our Lord Jesus says about divorce. Jesus here is showing us the sweep and the force and the intent of the Old Testament Deuteronomy 24 law on divorce. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Quoting Deuteronomy. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What we have here is Jesus. Jesus, our king, telling the citizens of his inaugurated kingdom that sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia, is the only legitimate grounds for which a husband may divorce his wife or a wife her husband. Divorce is not required, but it's It's not biblically mandated, but it is permitted in the case of sexual immorality. So allow me to give us a a sort of an interpretive paraphrase that can really simplify what Jesus is saying here. This is what he's saying. Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24 that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, It's not just a matter of handing your spouse a bit of paper and it's a done deal. 
There are proper and there are improper grounds for divorce. A person can't divorce their spouse for any and every reason, contrary to what Rabbi Hillel might be teaching. I tell you, as the new lawgiver of the kingdom of God, that a man who divorces his wife for any cause that is not sexual immorality, porneia, so she, she burns his food, she loses her looks, he doesn't love her anymore, that man causes his wife to become a victim of adultery, that is, when the husband remarries. That woman is still married to her first husband in God's eyes. They are still a one flesh union. And, and the woman who marries that man, she's committing adultery too. She's marrying another man's wife. Oh, she's marrying another woman's husband, right? How is that so? Because there was never biblical grounds for divorce in the first place, right? Sure, the second marriage may be perfectly legal in the eyes of the state, but it's adulterous in God's eyes. And this would mean that the man who divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, porneia, likewise ought not to remarry, even as he ought not to have divorced his, his spouse. So here's an important question. If a person is sexually immoral, let's say they commit adultery, and their spouse divorces them, is the person who committed adultery allowed to remarry? Or must they remain single for the rest of their life? What I'm asking is, can the guilty party remarry? This text does not attempt to answer that question. The remarriage rights of the sexually immoral spouse are not addressed. This passage does not plainly grant the sexually immoral spouse the right to remarry, but neither does it flatly forbid it. And that's a very, very important point to recognize. I've heard many well-intentioned Christians say, once you're divorced, that's it, you can never remarry, even if the grounds for your divorce is that your spouse was sexually immoral, it doesn't matter. Both the guilty and innocent party must remain unmarried for the rest of their lives if they're not reconciled to each other. Many Christians believe that. Uh, but we need to be very, very careful, brothers and sisters, not to go beyond what the Bible tells us. And that certainly goes way beyond what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. We must be theologically precise in our understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage texts while maintaining a whole biblical balance. There's, there's just too much at stake. And, and this is where then Matthew 19 comes in, the most important text in the New Testament on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Matthew 19 is the only passage in the New Testament in which Jesus talks about those Two things in the same context. Divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality and remarriage. It's the only place. So let's turn there now. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. So they're not looking to, you know, receive the truth. It's just we want to stumble you and, you know, we're testing you. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, we're going to be covering the majority of what we just read there when we come to Mark 10. So what I want to do here is zero in on verse 9. As I said, this is the only passage in the New Testament where we have Jesus talking about these two things in the same sentence. Divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality and remarriage. It's the only place. Notice again, the man who divorces his wife for something other than sexual immorality and marries another woman is specifically guilty of adultery. Brothers and sisters, we need to let the the weight of that teaching uh, it just hang in the air it needs to be impressed upon our hearts it needs to be firmly established in our hearts and in our thinking this is one of those black or white teachings Jesus who is God is teaching us that the first marriage tie is not broken the couple is still married in the eyes of God And that's what counts. The biblical grounds do not exist to dissolve that one flesh union. But the text does sanction both divorce and remarriage if there is sexual immorality, if there's porneia. It's it's just what a plain reading of the text suggests. The crux of this passage is the relationship between sexual sin divorce And remarriage. That's what it's about. And if the man may legitimately divorce his wife, it's very superficial to suggest that the legitimacy is not sufficiently legitimate to involve legal remarriage. That the victimized spouse may, but is not required to, divorce the mate who is guilty of sexual sin. But if they do, If the victimized spouse does go through with the divorce, he or she is given the unequivocal right of remarriage. But again, just as in Matthew 5, there is nothing in this text which flatly forbids the sexually immoral spouse from marrying again. The text does not plainly grant the right to remarry, but neither does it plainly forbid it. Okay, we're at the halfway point of this sermon, and I want us to stop and take stock before moving into the second half in our remaining three texts. Jesus, our king, commands the citizens of his kingdom that only on the basis of sexual immorality is divorce permitted by God. And if that basis isn't there, then in the eyes of God, the marriage is still in effect. The couple is still 
in a one flesh union, regardless of whatever piece of paper a human court may have granted. Divorce, without their first being sexual immorality, is flatly forbidden by Jesus Christ. And divorce and remarriage, without their being first sexual immorality, is adultery. Jesus says so. So let's pretend you're back at work, COVID's done and done and done, and you're having a coffee break conversation. And I guess somebody with some, they're, maybe they're reading their Bible off on the side, or maybe they saw something on TV, but they come to you and say, hey, I was reading about the rules that Jesus laid down for Christians concerning uh, divorce and remarriage. You're like, oh, great. <laughs> if you don't mind me saying so, uh, Jesus is really strict. Are you, are you prepared to live your life by those rules? You say, well, yeah, yeah. You say, well, I mean, what if your husband were paralyzed in a car accident? What if two years into your marriage, he received massive brain damage and required 24-hour care? What, what if he didn't even know his own name? It's tragic. God forbid. It's terrible. But here you are. You're 25 years old, looking at the next 50 years of your life shackled to a severely brain-damaged quadriplegic. Are you saying Jesus wouldn't want you to be happy? To divorce and start again? Jesus wouldn't want you to marry another man? It's probably what your first husband would actually want for you. I mean, if you were conscious and able to think about these, he would want this for you. He wouldn't, want you to, he wouldn't want to subject you to misery for the rest of your life. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to look at Britney Spears in that little white chapel in Vegas at five in the morning and condemn her behavior. Even unbelievers scoff at that kind of behavior. It's easy to condemn that disgusting Bruno Mars song. But what about that example that I just gave? Shouldn't, I mean, really, shouldn't that be an exception too? Did, did that exception maybe slip Jesus' mind? Maybe we ought to do God a favor and write it in for him in the margins of our Bible. What do you think? And if we allow that exception, what about two or three or four others that really tug at the heartstrings and make perfect human sense? Shouldn't those be exceptions too? Maybe we should write those in the margins as well. Let's say Gretchen, a member here at New City who does not exist, uh, has met Wolfgang, the man of her dreams, a man who has all the qualities she could ever hope for in a future spouse. He's godly. He's involved in a church. He's handsome. He's got a good job. However, Gretchen finds out that Wolfgang is divorced. What concerns should Gretchen have at this point? Maybe she finds that out on date number one, date number two. What concerns should Gretchen as a believer have at this point? What kind of questions 
does Gretchen need to be asking at this point? What, what biblical texts need to be brought to bear? And what if she finds out that the grounds for Wolfgang's divorce weren't biblical? What would be the consequences of proceeding in marriage with a person who has engaged in an unbiblical divorce? Did God really say that it's adultery? What is it about the nature of marriage that makes it sacrosanct? Where breaking a marriage vow, even a vow made in the little white wedding chapel in Las Vegas, is a great evil in God's sight. Think of it this way. If we're to understand the significance of the ring of power from the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, we need to see how it fits into the context of the overall story that J.R.R. Tolkien is telling, right? Uh, How does the ring and all it signifies fit into Tolkien's story world? In the same way, understanding what Jesus and his apostles teach about divorce requires setting their statements in the story world of the Bible, particularly as it relates to Genesis 1 and 2. And this, brothers and sisters, is what distinguishes us as Christians from mere cultural conservatives who promote traditional family values. Our worldview, our interpretation and interaction with all reality is informed, in part, by the opening chapters of Genesis. The exegetical difficulties surrounding passages that deal with divorce and remarriage, notwithstanding, the main thrust of the scriptural teaching is clear as crystal. Christian marriage between a man and a woman was ordained by God from the very beginning. In the covenant of marriage, the husband and his wife become one flesh. They are joined together by God. Divorce, the splitting of the one flesh union that God has willed, that God has brought together, is not part of the original plan of the creator. It's an adulteration of the divine will for husband and wife. That's what Jesus himself teaches. Turn to Mark 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I want you to note the difference between that question and the question asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, 3, where they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That is actually the implied question here in Mark 10. We know that because the question as it's literally framed in Mark 10, uh, Mark 10 verse 2 was not a matter of debate. We, we, of course it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Moses said so. Deuteronomy 24 is very clear on that point. But there was major debate in Judaism over whether a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And that implied question is controlling what Jesus teaches his disciples in verse 10 to 12. So look at verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife for any and every reason and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband for any and every reason and marries another man, she commits adultery. And it's the same thing with Luke 16, 18. Anyone who divorces his wife 
for any and every reason and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman who has divorced for any and every reason commits adultery. And you think, well, John, maybe that's some sort of special pleading on your part here. The text doesn't actually say that. How can you say this? We can take this approach because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Some texts in the Bible on certain doctrines are clearer than other texts. Mark 10, 10 to 12, and Luke 16, 18 cannot, cannot, cannot be absolute statements with no exceptions. You know, anyone who divorces their spouse and remarries commits adultery, period. Or any person who marries a divorced person commits adultery, period. It can't be saying that because Jesus twice teaches in Matthew's gospel that there is an exception. Sexual immorality, parnea. We interpret scripture with scripture. So verse 3, what did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What Jesus is teaching here is that after the fall, God decreed and permitted divorce as one of the means to limit, to limit the foulness and infidelity of this fallen world. Moses permitting a man to write a certificate of divorce did not reflect the true creation ordinance. It was a realization of the sinful hardness of people's hearts. Divorce is not part of the creator's perfect design. It's part of the fall. And if God, through the law of Moses, permitted divorce, he did so, hear this, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred to continued indecency. Brothers and sisters, this means any view of divorce and remarriage taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as a morally neutral option, but always as evidence of sin, of the hardness of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees to the question was wrong. It was wrong, as is our own hearts, if we're preoccupied with the question, what's permitted? What's permitted? What are the loopholes? What's the law? And if you look back at your sinful divorce and remarriage and think, wow, man, am I ever glad I didn't hear John preach this text back there back in the day. Uh, That is a dreadful sign that something is very wrong with your heart even now, Christian. If the spirit is at work, you won't think, phew, I really dodged a bullet there. Instead, you will think, oh, Lord, I am so sorry. I, I was ignorant of the scriptures. I was blind to my own sin. I have broken your law and I've sullied the name of Christ. Please, Lord, forgive me. And you'll not only ask for the Lord's forgiveness, you'll make things right with your ex-spouse, with your kids, your parents, your in-laws. You'll make amends and ask for forgiveness with anyone else you hurt by by you breaking your marriage vows. 
Jesus clearly aligns himself with what God says in Malachi 2.4. I hate divorce. Why? Verse 7 of our text. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There is our theological foundation, brothers and sisters. If God has joined man and woman together, according to the structure of his own creation, divorce is not only unnatural, but it is rebellion, rebellion against him. God and human beings are so far apart on this issue that what God unites, sinful people divide. What God creates... Rebellious image bearers destroy. Husband and wife are considered to be one flesh in the eyes of God. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He says that to every married couple here. You're one flesh. You're one flesh. You're one flesh. Do you remember Ephesians 5? The one flesh union of human beings in marriage is a picture of the Christian's union with Jesus, with Christ as the bridegroom, and his church as the bride. Christian marriage is to reveal the mystery of Jesus loving his church. Christian marriage reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between the heavenly bridegroom and his earthly bride. Christian marriage is a billboard to the world advertising the reality of God uniting himself with fallen sinners, becoming one with them in spirit. That's a a picture of your marriage, brother, sister. Which makes divorce a satanic, satanic attack on what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son. Divorce attacks the gospel. Divorce attacks that picture of God's amazing love for sinners. Now, I'm, I'm sure you're feeling a bit limp uh, by this point, this has been a very heavy sermon. You've, you've been very patient with me so far, but I want to press on to our last New Testament text, the text which, along with sexual morality, gives us the second and last God-granted concession regarding divorce and remarriage, 1 Corinthians seven, ten to 15. It's what the Apostle Paul says, to the married, that is, the married Christians in the church, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. That is to say, Jesus himself spoke to this question during his earthly ministry. Paul is reiterating here the teachings of Jesus Christ. 10b, a wife must not separate from her husband on illegitimate grounds. Again, that's the assumed understanding here. He's following what Jesus said. But if she does... Paul refuses to recognize the validity of the divorce. Verse 11. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The first marriage is not considered to be annulled, just like Jesus said. She is still the wife of the man she divorced. She's not free to marry someone else. And a husband must not divorce his wife, again, on illegitimate grounds. Verse 12. To the rest, that is, to believers already married, to unbelievers... 
I say this, I, not the Lord. That's to say, Jesus never talked about this during his public ministry, but Paul, as an apostle, now gives God's authoritative word. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Paul is talking here, obviously, about spiritually mixed marriages, a mixed marriage that began with the couple both being unbelievers, but then the Lord saved one of them. And the apostle teaches us that the Christian who finds themselves in such a circumstance is not permitted to pursue divorce. In this instance, the path of obedience is to be married to an unbeliever. But now, but now that their spouse has become a Christian, the unbeliever can't stand it. Despite all the Christian's best efforts to hold the marriage together. Now, that's a key part. <laughs> the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce. They didn't sign up to be married to a Bible-thumping Christian, right? They want out. Brothers and sisters, the context, the grounds for this exception, for this concession, is so, so, so specific. We need to understand that. Look at verse 13. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For... The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So we see here what's occasioned these questions on the Corinthians' part about divorce and remarriage. They're asking Paul, look, if I've left behind my old life, and I've I've become now, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ, does not my relationship with my unbelieving, unrepentant spouse and my entire home atmosphere threatened to pollute and corrode my purity? Will I not be defiled? No, actually, it works completely the other way around. The Christian sanctifies their spouse. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to the Christian, the lifestyle of the Christian partner will affect the ethos and to some extent the values and lifestyle of that home. The Christian will be exerting a moral influence. The Christian spouse's example, their witness, their prayer, and their living out of the gospel makes the spouse, in this very limited sense, sanctified, holy. And if the spouse falls under the influence of the Christian partner's faith, lifestyle, prayer, and living out of the gospel, how much more the children? Even if only one parent is a believer... Children will be marked by an element of shaping and difference as compared to a completely pagan environment. Mom, dad, you will have an impact on your kids, even if your spouse is not a believer. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As Lightfoot puts it, what Paul is advising here is is the sacrificing of much the supposed ease of divorce from a difficult partner for the possible attainment of what is great gain, the conversion of your spouse. The New Living Translation translates it like this. Verse 16, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? 
And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So when a married man or woman hears and responds to the call of the gospel, but their spouse does not, then you believers should so live that in due time, God willing, they might save their spouse. Their home is now their primary mission field. 1 Peter 3.1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Don't divorce the unbelieving spouse. Instead, display the power of the gospel with your life. And if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, that means they're going to have a front row seat to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm personally very close to a couple, they're friends of the family, where this was the case for 35 years. The Lord used my father to lead the wife to Christ, but the husband wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And 13 years ago, the Lord saved the husband. So in their late 60s, the couple became, for the first time, a Christian couple. 35 years of faithfulness on the part of the wife. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. That is, spouses are not stuck in the slavery of a no-man's land where they have no spouse because the unbelieving partner willfully separated from them and yet are not able to remarry because they remain married in God's eyes. No, that's not the case. They're free. But we're seeing something very specific here. And it's so specific, in fact, that this kind of desertion almost never happens in our culture. This is the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of their spouse. Now, that's not unknown in Muslim countries, and it's quite lopsided. It's almost always the husband divorcing his wife because she became a Christian. But this sort of thing rarely happens in our culture. I've I've actually never heard of an instance of it. Maybe you have. It's very rare. Now, truth be told, in most abandonment circumstances in Canada, abandonment broadly conceived, sexual immorality, pornea, will be occurring within a few years at the outside anyway, which then will sever the marriage relationship in God's eyes and open up the possibility of remarriage for the Christian. But that doesn't always happen. What then? The Christian has two options. Live under the lordship of Christ and in obedience to his word. Or don't. Again, the point of all of this new city is not to familiarize ourselves with the exceptions so that when we so that we know when divorce is permitted. So like kind of like Weasley divorce lawyers, right? We know all the loopholes. That's not the point of this. No, the loathing, the loathing that God has for divorce is evident in just how seldom it's accepted 
And always, always on the basis of prior sin. Never as the morally neutral solution to anything. And if we care more for our own happiness or well-being or sexual and emotional fulfillment than being subject to the Lord Jesus Christ and living in obedience to his word, we'll pick being adulterers. And we'll be adulterers not just in the marital sense, but in the spiritual sense, too. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church, his blood-bought bride. Marriage is a picture of what the gospel has done in saving our eternal souls. It's beautiful. It's sacrosanct. If we drive by uh, Fort Knox in Kentucky or, or the Royal Canadian Mint in Ottawa, and, and we, we see the, the fortifications, the high walls, the guns, and the guards, we know that something very, very valuable must be inside, don't we? Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing here. The high, high walls of divorce in a negative image is showing us just how precious a treasure marriage truly is to God and should be to us. I want to ask, how precious is that gospel treasure to you? Friends, we're not defending marriage as an end in itself, but as something that really truly represents Jesus and his church. Something that truly represents our glorious bridegroom laying down his life for his defiled, sinful bride and making her clean. That's something of infinite value. That's more precious than anything in life. And if I have to put up with a lot of hardship... A lot of trial. A lot of unfulfilled longings. I know God's grace is sufficient. What I'm protecting, what I'm preserving and guarding by submitting my life to the Lordship of Christ is beyond compare. I see those high, high walls of divorce and instead of being bitter... Instead of looking for cracks in the wall that I can squeeze through, I praise God for the gospel treasure that lies protected behind those walls that's united me to my Savior. Amen.